Our Father, there is no more glorious calling in all of the world than to uplift the Lord Jesus Christ before your people and call the lost to salvation in Christ, to help your people to see from your word the truths that are found here. This indeed is a coffer of gold. We are privileged to find gems and diamonds every time we turn to your word. And we ask that you will confirm our hearts in faith in Christ Jesus more and more every time we turn to this infallible rule of faith and of practice. Help us to see the greatness of the covenant of grace ordered in all things and sure and the blessedness of the blood of Christ that removes our guilt and forgives our sins. Give to us hearts indeed that melt, but help us to know that when our feelings run high and even when our feelings run low, the truth is the truth and your word remains the same. And those who may be among us today who have never realized their lost condition, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will open his or her heart and that that person would come to faith in Jesus Christ on this this Sabbath day. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now Zechariah the prophet prophesied around the year 520 B.C. as the exiles have returned from captivity and have been given the commandment of the Lord to rebuild the temple. The discouraged remnants found it very difficult to concentrate upon this task. Simple survival crushed out enthusiasm for rebuilding the temple, even though this is what God would have them do. And in the midst of this, God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets, to proclaim the word of the Lord. And a people is mightily blessed when the word of God is multiplied in their midst. Two prophets to proclaim the word of the Lord with the command, essentially this, you rebuild the temple and God will take care of your needs. Now this vision brings consolation to those who are overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and sin. How could God accept them? How could God receive them? In view of their sins, how could God receive them in his presence? How could they do the Lord's work of rebuilding the temple when they see within their hearts such sin and such iniquity? Have you ever experienced that? Surely every Christian has experienced that. Uh, How can God accept me? How can God receive me? I'm such a sinner. How can I begin to do his work? How can I fulfill the task to which he has called me? How vile and stained is my soul? And that leads to paralysis in the Christian walk. So we come to this passage and we find encouragement for the calling that God has for us. You know, Augustine said, the new is hidden in the old and the old is revealed in the new, but 
It is hardly hidden here at all. The new, that is Christ and his righteousness, is very clear in this passage. Would you first of all look at, with me at a filthy priest? We find it in verse 3, in which we read, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now this is not good news. This is the priest who is dressed in filthy garments. Isn't it the role of the priest to draw us near to God? Shouldn't he be morally clean? And yet his unclean vestments represent moral impurity. Joshua the high priest at this point in history is representative of all of the people of God. If he is rejected, they are rejected. If he is not accepted, then God's people are not accepted. And so he is here in the presence of God with filthy garments. Now the high priest wore garments like a king, mirroring the kingly glory of God, except on one day, and that day was the Day of Atonement. He then wore white, which is represented here in the change of garments. He then wore white and entered behind the veil with the blood. But now we find that the text in verse 3 says that he is dressed in filthy garments. Now, the English translations hardly do justice to the word here. The word really means excrement. The word is translated in the authorized version in Isaiah 28.8, loathsome vomit. So from head to foot, this priest who is the representative of the people of God in this passage is dressed basically in sewage. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's completely unclean. In God's presence like this, in the presence of a holy God like this, in the presence of the righteous king of kings like this. And Satan accuses him, and Satan's accusations are absolutely true. Now, how does God view sin? Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's how God views sin. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. And that's true of us all at one point in life. We think we're clean. We think we're acceptable. We think that God will pardon us on the basis of who we are, our works, our efforts. We think we're fine, but we are not washed from our filth. My friend, God is a holy God. Altogether, holy in all of his thoughts and all of his ways, too holy to behold iniquity. God is holy. Do you see that? Do you know that? Do you understand that? Do you feel that within your soul? When you read the works of Jonathan Edwards and he speaks of his sin before God, he says, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. Because you see, every sin against God, those that are large and those that are small, that is to say, those that we consider small, every sin against the holy God makes us by nature deserving of his infinite displeasure. We're sinning against the infinitely holy God. We are deserving of his infinite displeasure against our sin by nature. It is not the whole that need a physician, but the sick. And this text comes to sinners Dirty, filthy, rotten sinners, totally depraved, totally incapable of recovering ourselves from our fallenness. This text comes to you, and it comes to me. 
There then is the priest with the filthy clothes. Secondly, I would see in this text with you, Satan accuses God's people. Look at verse 1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, being on the right hand, that position was the position of the accuser in a judicial process. What is being portrayed to us in this night vision of Zechariah in Zechariah 3 is a courtroom scene in which Satan is accusing the people of God through the filthiness of the high priest who cannot represent them because of his filth before God himself. Accusing the people of God. The New Testament tells us he is the accuser of the brethren. He comes to you and me and he says, how can God accept a person like you? How can God accept a man like you, a woman like you? How can you accept those that, uh, that he represents. Look at his fallenness. Look at his sin. And so Satan accuses and he charges of sin. You know that within your own soul. Even as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you sometimes, because of the sinfulness of your heart, say, Lord, I know what your gospel says, but nonetheless, within myself, sometimes I feel, how can you accept me? How can you receive me? So here's the high priest in filthy garments, indeed in excrement, in sewage. In the presence of a holy God, Satan is accusing him and the accusations are true. But then will you see the rebuke. The rebuke. The Lord answers Satan. And he does so in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Joshua had an advocate. And that advocate speaks for him just as we have an advocate who speaks for us. We read it in our assurance of pardon this morning. My children, my little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so the rebuke that comes to Satan who accuses God's people through the filthiness of the high priest, the rebuke comes from the Lord himself. The gospel is his provision. Salvation is his provision. Only he can redeem. Only he can save. And Jehovah himself rebukes Satan. Rebuke means to sweep the accusation clean away. Clean away. And the rebuke is of grace. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, he describes, therefore, this one who is dressed in filth, Satan's accusations now rebuked by the Lord as a brand that the Lord himself plucks from the fire. Perhaps thinking of the furnace of Babylonian captivity, which was the consequence of their sin. And I see here the compassion of the Redeemer, don't you? That he plucks us as well as brands from the fire, by entering the fire himself to rescue us by being consumed in our place in the furnace of God's wrath and thereby quenching Mount Sinai's flames. So that Christ himself went into the fire, went to the cross, and bore 
the awful wrath of God in the place of sinners and thereby rebuking the accusations of the evil one. And notice also the theme of election that runs through here and other places in Zechariah too, but here in this verse, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Jerusalem standing, of course, for the people of God themselves. Joshua could add no word. What could he do? He's in the presence of a holy God and he's filthy. What word could he say? Could he say, Satan, what you say of me is not true when there is filth all over him? He has no word. He has no work that he can offer. There is nothing that he can do. There is nothing that he can contribute. He can't justify himself. He could never have regenerated himself. He can't believe on his own. He can't clean himself up. Had there been baptism, baptism would not have washed his sins away. There is nothing that he, and there is nothing that you and I can do to cleanse ourselves from our sins. You know, if you're in the throes of Satan's accusations, nothing will do but sovereign free grace. So-called free will won't do it. What will that do? What will human effort accomplish? What will your works do? What could this man do, I ask you, to clean himself up in the presence of a holy God? What could he have done? And I love how it's put here by the Lord. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Because it's electing grace. You know, when I'm bowed down with a sense of sin, I'll just give you a little practical counsel here. I want to go and I I want to read the highest Calvinist I can find. I want to read someone who speaks to me of the sovereignty of God's grace, the freedom of His love, the indelible grace that comes through His work in the lives of His people, the promise that we will persevere unto the end. That's what I want, because God will never cast aside those of his people for whom Christ has shed his blood. Who will bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ who died. The sole ground and motive for choosing his people is in his own heart of love, and that means that nothing that I do, none of my failings will remove that love, nor will they remove that love from you, people of God. What can man do to remove it? What can my failings do to remove it? What can my sin do to remove it? Yes, I should hate my sin, but God loves me still. What can Satan do to hinder it? When God says, I am for you, who can be against you? That's the good news of the text. Whom God intends to save, none can stop. And this means... Come as you are. If you are here and you, are, you don't understand your lostness, you don't understand your sin, but now you're beginning to see God is a holy God. I stand before him and I'm clothed in, in filth. Indeed, indeed, I need a high priest to represent me who is altogether holy and clean himself. You come to Jesus and you come as you are, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. You come. You come just as you are. You don't try to clean yourself up. You don't add works of righteousness of your own. You don't have any. The text has already told us in Isaiah that we've quoted, they're just filthy rags in the presence of God. You come. You come. Come. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But you come as you are. Don't bring anything. 
Now I want you to see, fourthly, the cleansing. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again so that we catch the flow. Now Joshua was standing before the Lord, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And so God himself, the angel of the Lord, puts new clothes on this priest, the representative of God's people who stood in the presence of God morally unclean, represented by the filth on his garments. God himself does this, the angel of the Lord. Now, I don't have time to to unpack this for you. But, you know, we think of angels, and angels are created beings, but the word angel simply means messenger. And had we time to go back and look at Genesis and Exodus and a place in Joshua, another place in Judges and so forth, we would see that the angel of the Lord is identified with Jehovah himself, and I'm utterly convinced, as are most orthodox scholars of the Bible, that the angel of the Lord is the messenger of the Lord. It's Christ in his pre-incarnate state. It is Christ who clothes this filthy man with clean garments. So the angel of the Lord commanded new clothes to be given him. Christ, our righteous advocate, commands our filthy garments removed and clean garments put upon us from head to foot. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure garments, he says. Now remember, he stands for the people of God, so he's saying this not only to him but to the people of God. And he says to you and to me, I've taken your filthy garments away, believer, and I have put upon you the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. And a new mitre, the headdress of princes and kings. You remember the high priestly mitre attached was a golden plate. And on that plate, Kodesh la Yahweh, holy to the Lord, holy to Jehovah. We read in Exodus 28, It shall be always upon his forehead that he may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow. So all that the priests represent, all that he represents, all of the people of God, from head to foot, now he is clothed in that garment that enables him to go into the most holy place as the representative of God's people. Now the text is working on a multitude of levels. The high priest is cleansed, God's people are accepted, God's people may now be a priesthood to God, Christ our priest is effectual to our salvation because the priestly office points to him, our great high priest. And in our high priest, through his work, he has taken away our filthy garments loaded with iniquity and sin and depravity and rebellion. He has taken it clean away and he has given to us, his people, clean clothes. Clean clothes. And here is portrayed the sinner's basic need. Sinner, sinner, our basic need is perfect merit. Okay? We have no merit, much less perfect merit, not on, not on our own. We, we can produce nothing 
that makes us acceptable to God. Your need is perfect merit in the presence of God. What Jesus calls the wedding garment in the parable, and Paul calls imputed righteousness in his epistles, is what we find here. In other words, he has imputed to the high priest perfect merit to meet the demands of the perfection of the law of God that spoke against him with all of its fervor and fire. Our sins have been taken away. We have no merit, no approach, no standing. Isaiah 59, 6 says, Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Which means that there are those of us who are trying to cover ourselves with what we make, and it's just a spider's web. It will not clothe us. And we must be stripped of self-righteousness and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Turn to Philippians, the third chapter. This is that of which Paul the Apostle speaks in Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7, he has described himself as of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Oh, from a worldly perspective, he had a lot of which to boast, but he says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look at this, verse 9, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You need a righteousness. That is to say, in the presence of a holy God, in His court of law, you need to be declared not guilty and positively righteous legally in His court. That's what happens to Joshua, the high priest, the representative of his people in the third chapter of Zechariah. And that's what he promises to all who believe in Jesus. I mean that. That's what the Bible says. That if you, with heart and soul, truly believe in Christ alone for your redemption, he will take away your filth and he will give you the perfection of Christ in his court of law. The angel of the Lord then stands by, we read at the end of verse 5, he stands by and protects his people. Now that's the trial in vision. Some surreal elements in this vision, but that's the trial in vision given to Zechariah, the prophet, around the year 520 B.C. Now I want us to move ahead in history, and I want us to see together the trial on Mount Calvary. Satan accuses still, accuses God's people, comes to us and accuses our consciences because of our moral failings. But oh, with what awesome trembling wonder we now turn our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ was laden with the sins of all of God's people throughout all of the ages 
and he was condemned. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He was condemned on that cross long ago. As he was declared guilty, though he was morally innocent, he was declared guilty because my sin was imputed to his account in God's court of law. And now when we believe in Jesus, we are declared not guilty. More than that, positively righteous as his perfect merit, his righteousness, his perfect record is imputed to us so that when you stand in the presence of God, you stand there as a believer with a perfect record, judicially speaking. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now a day is coming when those outside of Christ who do not know Christ, who have not trusted in Christ, will stand in filthy garments in the presence of a holy God. And God will say, Arise, long silent words come to the judgment, and those words and actions will speak condemningly against them. And Christ will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. But if your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you may say, my condemnatory judgment has already taken place. God took away my filth. He put it on his son, amazingly, who voluntarily took it. God provided an alien righteousness for me, the righteousness of Christ. And God says, if I have justified you, who is to accuse you? If I have justified you, who is to condemn you? If you are dressed in the righteousness of my Son, who can condemn you in my presence? And God promises in this context to bring the branch. Zechariah 3.8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. You know why that's significant? It's a messianic name connected with the truth that the Lord our righteousness will come of whom Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 4, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And he says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. The branch is the one who cleanses from sin. So do not even try to wash your own garments. Don't even try it. You can't do it. The miracle of grace is through his merit alone. Now, I've told you this story before, but I do so love it. Great theologian. Carried a book around with him all the time. Oh, not a, not a thousand-page tome under his arm. Not a 500-page book. But a book of three pages. There was a black page. There was a red page. And there was a white page. You hear this, children? Three pages. That's all. Black page, red page, white page. He took it out every day, looked over it. I'm sure he wept, prayed, praised. Took out that little book, read it, put it back in his pocket. Finally, someone had the courage to ask this great man, 
what is that little book you have there? Oh, he said, well, let me show you. He took it out and he said, well, you see this black page? This black page represents my heart before I came to know Jesus. You see this red page? This represents the blood of Jesus that cleanses me from all my sin. You see this white page? It represents my heart in God's presence now, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, my friends, that was a truly great divine. He was a truly great theologian. And you never mature beyond the cross. You never mature beyond those simple, profound truths. Matter of fact, you'll deepen your understanding throughout eternity. But you'll never, never mature beyond that. Hey, you want to witness to somebody? I have a thought. Why don't you put a book together of three pages? Say, hey, read this book, will you? We'll talk about it later. They take it home. There's a black page, a red page, a white page. What do they have in mind? You come back and you can talk about it. That's what's happened to the believer. That's what's happened to you, believer. And I know this week you failed. So have I. I know that you've sinned. So have I. I know that your conscience has been defiled. Yep, so is mine. And yet... The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. That's the bottom line to which we come time and time and time and time and time again. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who grasps this is a truly great divine. A truly great divine. Now let's allow Martin Luther to bring our final word of application. Christian... You really can believe that Christ's righteousness justifies you. Martin Luther knew that during the time of the Protestant Reformation as this great biblical doctrine was recovered and he proclaimed it and preached it. And yet you will remember that at one point in his life, he was spirited off to Wartburg Castle and there he was kept um, a benevolent prisoner. He was being protected. There, of course, he translated the Bible into German, and he was very busy writing tracts and, and uh, writing books and so forth and trying to spread the gospel from his little cell there in the castle. But uh, being in a, in a castle surrounded by four walls can be a pretty depressing thing. And Martin Luther, uh, let this encourage you, by the way, the greatest Christians I know of have suffered from depression. I'm not charging you a thing for that. That's important. Martin Luther was going through great depression. And he dreamt that Satan appeared to him with a long scroll. Carefully written, all of the sins and transgressions of which he was guilty, even from his birth. The evil one then proceeded to read all of these out and mocked him. How can such a sinner ever think of being called to God's service? How can such a sinner even think that he'll be rescued from hell? So it got longer and longer, and Luther grew more and more terrified. His soul was filled with agony. And at last, he jumped up and he exclaimed, and I'm quoting Luther, It is all true, Satan. It is all true, Satan, and many more sins which I've committed in my life, which are known to God only. But right at the bottom of your list 
The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And grasping the inkstand on his table, he threw it at the devil, who soon fled. And if you go to Wartburg Castle, they'll show you the ink spot on the wall where he threw his inkwell at the devil. So, Christian, you can believe that Christ's righteousness justifies. You can believe that God keeps his word. You can believe that having trusted in Christ, you are saved from your sins. You can believe unto the assurance of your salvation. And when Satan accuses, and he comes out with that long list, I can say it is all true, Satan. And many more sins which I have committed in my life, which are known to God only, but right at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. I throw my inkwell at you, devil. And oh, by the way, did I tell you? My ink is crimson drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.